This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 13. And the song lyric of the day is by Philip Namenworth. You get lost, you get found, can't let that kind of thing get you down. Because there's a fundamental rule that everything will be alright. Well, some folks just drive you insane. They don't get better when you complain. There's some complicated logic, some cosmic whoop-de-doo. It's the secret of the universe. If I knew it, I'd share it with you. Days are hard, nights are long. Sometimes every single thing you do seems wrong. But it's a fundamental rule that everything will be all right. Yes, I hear you, and I understand. I'll be looking for you throughout the show. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration conversations with world-class musicians. Welcome to Sound Heights Records. This is Yisrael Aryeh. We're very pleased today to present an interview with the boogie-woogie mystic himself, Philip Namenworth. His story is the journey of a thousand lifetimes. And just talking to him, it's like a trip through musical history, beginning with his very early duop days singing with Chuck Negron, who later went on to fame with the group Three Dog Night. He's played with the great Dave Van Ronk, Elliot Randall, Kenny Vance of Jay and the Americans, an amazing early synthesizer album called The American Metaphysical Circus. He wrote music for Sesame Street, He's written plays about the Baal Shem Tov, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. He's also very well versed in the teachings of Chabad Hasidus. He's a student of Rabbi Simon Jacobson. After having met him initially at Rabbi Yaakov Bankhalter's Chabad Loft, he and I began a phone chavrusa, a learning partnership that lasted a number of years, starting out particularly with learning the topic of shalom bias or peace, marital peace, which has been incredibly formative and inspirational and essential for me in my married life. Important to mention that this podcast session, as all of our podcast sessions and our musical releases, are made possible by our wonderful patrons. Check out how to become one at patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords and of course go to soundheightsrecords.com to check out all of our musical releases all the podcast sessions you can sign up for the mailing list there see the rewards that we offer on patreon pre-release tracks and unreleased tracks we add new stuff there all the time there's new stuff we're coming out with and we're digging into the archives to bring out some old unreleased gems so come check it out He's a good friend, a great guy, and a true musical adventurer. So here it is, our conversation with 5L, Philip Namenworth, the Boogie Woogie Mystic. 
people in my house sang a lot. They did, and my sister played piano, and I wasn't interested. I took piano lessons, and I didn't like it. I wanted to ride my bike, you know. And then one time I heard my sister play a song called Boogie Woogie, Yankee Doodle Boogie. And I went crazy. I said, what is that? You know, and I made myself sit down and poke it out. And that was the first boogie I ever heard. And there was that. But I was more actually into singing at that time. Because doo-wop, I'm a little older. Doo-wop is... Um, was very big and do up is one of the great art forms because if you sing background, you're constantly warming up your voice. Mm. You sing a half hour of oohs and ahs and yes, man, you're re- you're well. And then when it comes time for you to step out, you're warmed up. So I heard a, a, a record on the radio. I must've been about 13 by the students uh, called um, so young. And then on the other side was uh Sunday to Monday, Tuesday to Wednesday, Thursday to Friday. Oh, oh, any old time. You know, just one of these great doo-wop songs. Doo-wops were like calisthenics for the voice. Bounced around. You had to harmonize with others. But unlike today, today you have a lot of a cappella singing. And it, to me, it's very denuded. In the days of true doo-wop, um, you could get you guys to sing... And the harmonies would be right, but you would hear the unique tone of each person's voice without it sticking out too much. It wasn't so slick. Hmm. And I think I liked that. And, uh, you know, you'd have these different personalities. You know, you'd back up a little bit, but it wasn't like, you know, this triple overdubbing with and everything has to be perfect. And uh, it was more it was very much from the heart. Right. We were really crazy teenagers. It was very much that was our thing. We'd stand on street corners. We'd find, a, I remember True Form Shoes on 161st Street. We'd go in there for the Echo. You'd go in the subway for the Echo. <laughs> You'd go, go looking for an Echo, which yeah. is the name of a really cool song by Richie Reichick, which was uh, recorded by Kenny Vance was originally with uh, Jay and the Americans, rock and roll. And uh, I was very honored to have uh, sung, sung it many times, Kenny Dance and the Planet Zone. So, yeah, so you, you, were, um, you started to, to perform in, in a duop group. That was one of your earliest, earliest groups. We're, we're... Uh, when I was about 14 and a half, I'd been singing with people here and there. And then I went to do with Clinton and I sang with all the guys in the bathroom and uh it was my first real coming from like a a white neighborhood hanging out with the black guys and i knew all the songs so i was all of a sudden in a new crowd because i knew all the tunes and at that time i still had my first tenor voice which completely changed on me in the middle of the the time there (laughs) you you were so you were singing mostly the high parts Back then? Um, well, I used to be able to, you know, I had a very, very high full stutter. But I, when I sang, with, I, I would sing second tenor. Now, it was set up as baritone, second, first tenor, bass, and lead. And he said, you know, I've got this group that I sing with from Taft, and our second tenor just left. You want to come sing with us? So I said, oh, okay. And 
turned out this group was called the Rondells, not the ones who made that record, but the lead singer was Chuck Negron, who became uh, one of the lead singers of Three Dog Night. Yeah. And we were, um, we are still in touch somewhat. And um, I, I remember doing arrangements for the songs because I had a very good ear and I could tell everybody, you know, let's do summertime. Hey, you sing this and you sing that. And it kind of worked out. It was, you know, the girls like it. And and you got to remember the Bronx at one time was poo speech. See, today everybody speaks about everything. In the Bronx, it was either a grunt, a yell, or a punch. <laughs> <laughs> How are you feeling and really cared? Right. They weren't talking about your inner development. I was kind of a sensitive kid. So, you know, I think God gave us music to not only a taste of, of, of what sentence is, but to us and give us a place to nestle while we're getting a lot of other stuff together. And that was my place. You, you performed with the Rondells at the Apollo, right? Yes, we were in the um, what you put al- amateur show, and we came in second. <laughs> and boy, it was uh-huh. scary because um, they had a big guy with a hook, and if you were not good, they would blow a horn, and he would come out and yank you off the stage. <laughs> and we had um, white chinos and black chukka boots and green sweaters, and. I was very shy, and all the guys danced on stage, but I couldn't. I was so shy. <laughs> but we we did that, and then we had a management, and things happened, and then they didn't, and then it kind of just drifted. Are there any, any recordings? Uh, any recordings of that group? Not really, but on one of Chuck's later albums, uh, as a solo artist, he put the first song I ever wrote at fourteen called "Imagine a Fourteen-Year-Old." Yeah. Calling for you, saying, why did you leave me? You know, all of that stuff. And uh, he recorded it years later, and it's on. It's also in part of a... He put out a book called Three Dog Nightmare. And uh, in that, wow. in the video of that, he uses the song, too. So the first song that I ever wrote got recorded. I found a great picture online of this, how I knew that you, you were at the Apollo. There's a picture of, of you at the Apollo with Chuck Negron. And I, at, first really? I, at first I couldn't tell which one is you. You, you haven't seen it? Wait a minute. Are we, are we, are we lined up? What like do you mean? one on top of the other? Yes, yes. He's on the... It was not... I don't know if that was the Apollo. It might have been a club we played out in Brooklyn. Oh, it's a, it, the, the, the caption says at the Apollo in 58. Oh my goodness! Because the Apollo, we're wearing white jackets and yeah. the one you just, yeah, and black bow ties, yeah. Yeah, the Apollo we wore green sweaters. It was a club in Brooklyn. It was a mistake. Oh, okay. Well, there's a so I th- I think I know which one is you. You're the second from the bottom. Well, how shall we name a man until I get it? There's a guy. There's there's someone under you who who looks like he must be like 11 years old. If if the if the person I I think is the one that looks most <laughs> like. You. There was somebody younger than you in the group. I don't know. We were we we were in high school, you know. I mean, these guys were a little more advanced than me, especially Chuck, Charlie, and uh, Mike Heinrich, who was the bass player, who I'm still in touch with. Mm. It, was, it was the most fun ever. Wow. 
saying the why, you know. It was just like, oh, this is so much fun singing with other people. And you had to know your part. Part was important to make it to make it work. And years later, when I ran into Kenny Vance, who was of Jay and the Americans, in another situation, he found out that I was with the Rondells or and that I knew all those songs. And I wound up singing with his group on and off and writing songs with Kenny. And uh. that do-up thing paid off. In fact, I owe it to do-up that I found my way to a Jew- Yiddishkeit. So I was uh, going along my merry way. And, uh, you know, I always was spiritual. But unfortunately, I went to Hebrew school when I was a kid. And that in those days, the Hebrew schools, I don't know. The one I was at was just not happening. And it was just drove me right away. But I liked it. You know, I liked the stuff. But then I went out uh, learning about everything else. I studied Hinduism. I studied Buddhism. I lived on communes. I was in Haight-Ashbury in the 60s. I joined a guy named Dave Van Rock. I answered an ad in the Village Voice. And I joined him and made a record called Dave Van Rock and the Hudson Dusters, which is kind of a, a folk. I don't know. It's 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 in a lot of collection. That's a. It's a really. I was listening to it. <laughs> I've listened to it a couple of times. It's really good. I mean, there's some really, really good music on there. Um, yeah, it was less experimenting in an age when people were not. Well, I read. I read his. Um, his autobiography, he mentions you. First, first of all, what you have? Tell me the story. Why does he call you Pot? <laughs> or, or, or don't tell me. But <laughs> oh, <laughs> Pot. Well, you know, I had any kid who hasn't had an identity identity crisis is never going to find himself. So I was going through my identity crisis. I washed pots in the camp. They were bigger than me, so they would call me Phil Pot. So, so pretty soon, everybody was calling me Pot. <laughs> I kind of like that. A because it made everybody angry. Right? What a 15-year-old kid could, a 16-year-old kid couldn't ask for more. I got into college at 17. Uh-huh. And here I am at the Bernard Baruch School of Business, and I'm telling people my name is Pot. <laughs> I washed Pot. And right after that summer, I went to um, City, City University, um, Bernard Baruch School. Uh-huh. And, I, and I joined a theater group, and I saw a jazz trio called the Three Pots. <laughs> and we sang Lambert Hendricks and Ross music because I was into scat and listening to real vocal music. I grew up on that. Just the best you could ever. And I emceed shows. And even when I was in camp, they got me. I was such a little squirt. They got me to play little Abner. I mean, it was <laughs> once again, music. So, so with Dave Van, with Dave Van Ronk, um, he, you just you just answered. Dave Van Ronk is legendary. So you just answered an ad, and you auditioned, or Dave Van Ronk looking for keyboard player. So was there like a line a line out the door? How'd you get the gig? I mean, he was pretty well known in the in the village at that at that time. I used to listen to him. Oh yeah, he said needed. I said okay. My friend Jerry Leishman took me down, and we took my farfisa, and I walked in, and the guitar player's name is Dave Woods, whose father is Harry Woods, who wrote Try a Little Tenderness mm. and Red Red Robin. Didn't know that at the time. Dave was there, and, he, and, and Dave says to me, can you play a blues in B-flat? I said, sure, let's play a blues in B-flat. He said, you're hired. 
In other words, they were getting all these kids who can play in ENA because they were rock and rollers. But I came from a little bit. I was a jazz boy. And he, he had a jazz background as well. Dave Van Runk had his jazzy very much everything. He was an outstanding artist, gifted, performer, very giving. And how I used to watch him work his songs, hmm. how he would understand them so deeply. Actually, one of the things we recorded on that album was uh, Joni Mitchell uh, had given Dave both sides now. Hmm. Uh, uh, but Dave called it clouds. Right. Right. He writes about okay. that. In his... <laughs> right. He asked that how we got food because how he, because um, Judy Collins, I was over at the house and Judy Collins came over and said, you know, I was talking to Joni. Would you mind if I did that song too? And you know what happened to her version? It became a smash. Yeah. <laughs> so they went, but they were starting to play our version oh, on man. radio. And it's a really lovely, it's just guitars and me playing a little bit of organ on it. And Dave's version of Clouds with his gruff voice was just, uh, you know, I sing kind of gruff now, but back then I had more of a high tenor. Yeah. Did you sing, did you sing with him at all or, or, or just yeah. keyboard? Yeah. I sang all, all the backgrounds with the bands. I did arrangements. What was it? So how long were you, were you uh, playing with him? What, as long as the band lasted. I mean, we did festivals and stuff, and I think it, at one point it got to be too much financially or something. You know, it, you have to support the whole band unless you get a big hit. But the the band was fabulous. The bass player was Ed Gregory, a guy from the South who was monstrous, and Dave Woods was an incredible guitar player. And the drummer was Rick Henderson, who I think had played with, played with Mose Allison. Hmm. And... Dave and me, and you just had to follow Dave because he'd add a bar here or there, or he'd do what he wants. But yeah, you and we, I got to meet everybody. I mean, you know, I met uh, when we were playing at the Village Gate. This is one of my many sorry moments. I met Otis Span, mm. who became my um, my idol, and he invited us up to his uh, hotel room for whatever. And I didn't go, and of course, he died a few years after oh. that. <laughs> When I met Dave, he said, uh, said Philip, you're playing so much uh, jazz. I want you to listen to this record. And he gave me Otis Span record, mm. and that basically changed my life from that moment on. Which which record? Do you remember the, the title? I'm not sure. It, was, it had Span's Boogie and uh, a, a lot of other stuff that's the most popular. But I'd never really heard guys playing solo blues. And it was something I could do and something I loved. And um, it changed me. Today I'm called the Boogie Woogie Mystic, but that it started back then. Otherwise, mm. I would have been more of a, a jazzer. Or you've been a, a doo-wop mystic, it sounds like. A doo-wop mystic. But you use it all. Look, Billy Joel uses <laughs> doo-wop in his songs. You know, it's every kind of, kind of... I was talking to a guy in Crown Heights, and he said, oh, you know, uh, I don't like rock and roll. I said, you have to remember, every type of music has a truth and a personality your job is to find that in that music for you, not to criticize it. And he thanked me a long time later. Hmm. You have to be open to what people are doing. You know, music's a language, and uh, you can get together with people from all over the country, all over the world, not speak the same language, and, and get very close in some ways.
he writes in his book, he says that that's the only album, David M. Rank writes, it's the only album that he actually enjoys listening to of his. <laughs> that's that, what he said. Yeah. I know. And the writer whose name was Elijah Walt, he's a very fine writer. I've been in touch with him a little here and there. He was a very good guy. He's the guy who wrote that. Uh, they took this for that script of the one with, uh, you know, they made of the movie of Dave Van Rock, which was... Inside Llewellyn David. Inside Llewellyn David, right. That, that mo- I saw that movie. It, it was. Uh, it, I didn't see the connection <laughs> between the movie. I mean, except for some very no, l- no, loose... there wasn't. There wasn't. In fact, I spoke to Dave's wife, uh, Andrea. You know, many years later, when I was playing at the cutting room, and I saw her there, and wasn't so sure what she thought about it. <laughs> you saw the movie. I didn't see the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, because because uh, I, I would be interested because it, it, it obviously somebody whoever made the movie saw some kind of dark side to Dave Van Ronk. His uh, it, that was not my my experience with has with his music. Um, this is it was it's a, a very dark movie. Yeah, deep thinker could not stand for BS on any level and was truthful about music. I remember being over his house. He came to see me when I was playing in cabarets that mm. started in the 80s. And you know, I said, I'm gonna make a record in this. And I have this song called 50 Chairs in My Living Room. And I don't know if it fits. He said, no, it's a good song. You <laughs> take a good song and you use it. <laughs> he would just, he would tell you right out. And he, he was like a very, very deep thinker, a very well read, mm-hmm. talk to you about anything. It was very nice to come from the Bronx, go downtown. At this time, maybe I was I left my house and I was living on Morningside Drive with my girlfriend. And um, it was nice to go from there and go down to the Greenwich Village and hang in Dave's house. And everybody would drop by and Patrick Sky would come by and Dave's wife at the time was the manager. And you'd go places and they knew him. So, you know, you're guilty by association. Right. <laughs> you get to play with all, you get to hear all kinds of people. You get to see what the club business is like and what it shouldn't be like. And so that was my, uh, whatever. I don't really, uh, you know, know so much about him. I was so young. I wish that I had some kind of brain when I was doing half of the things that I did in those years. <laughs> right. I don't think I, I didn't have a half a brain. I think the next thing after that, I formed a group called the Napanor's Pottery Shop. I was working with Benjamin Goldstein at that time, and he's a lyricist and a writer. And we had written many shows for children's theater, and they ran for 10 years straight in New York with the Merry Many Players. And um, we did all kinds of concerts, and I was introduced at a party to a guy named Louis Falco. Now, Louis Falco was one of the great dancers of all times. And he worked with Juan Antonio and she's going to get Jennifer Muller. And they hired me to write this ballet called Caviar. So what it was is we took my band and put it on stage. Ben and I wrote a script that I spoke throughout the whole thing. And I wrote maybe five minutes of orchestral music in the beginning. And it was very, the first rock kind of opera. And there I am, I'm thinking that was 1968, maybe. We're, we're at City Center. And wow. then we're at the Delacorte. The Delacorte. 
So it was like, oh, this is nice. But I had no idea that it was, you know, anything big. I just was, oh, this is good. <laughs> I just, it was nice. And uh, at the end of the ballet, a lot of people stood up and clapped and some booed because it was very political. Has that, has that been captured on, on film or, or? Just a small piece, which is in Lincoln Center Library, but it's just a very, very small piece. Ah. And, the, and the, there were sharks that were carved that were on stage. And Marisol did that. The famous artist. Wow, sounds sounds like a while. The, all the, the, I mean, because you also made an album around that time called the American Metaphysical Circus. I listened. To, I, it oh, sounds. Gosh, it sounds amazing. Yeah, I, that, I, I haven't delved that deeply into it yet, but I. <laughs> I was. I went out. I was so completely crazy and stoned a lot at that time. Pardon the expression. Ben and I decided to go. We were very close friends and wrote together all the time. We lived together and I guess it was 1960 after Dave Van Recken. We went out to the West Coast because I heard that Janis Joplin was looking for a piano player for her full tilt boogie band. Huh. So I had a girlfriend at the time and she said, well, there's a guy I know, you could stay at his house. His name is Joe Bird. So I get to Joe's house and this guy is amazing. He's a sensational musician. He's Unbelievable. And in this old, in this garage out in the back, he's got all these synthesizers. Now this is 1967. It's not, people were not doing this. This is the first album that way. Wow. And we, we got to be friends and he saw that I could actually get what he was doing a little bit. And uh, we wrote one of the songs together and I conducted some of that record and played piano on it. No, no, Joe conducted it. He's a fantastic arranger, conductor, producer, music man, avant-gardist. And yeah, and Columbia Records put it out. And it still gets hits and streams and used in television and stuff. It's very unique sound. I mean, I, I mean those, those early, I mean, I'm very, I, I love those very early synthesizer albums because it's, it's um, obviously they were very cutting edge. But what was it? I mean, did you did you work with the synthesizers at, at that point at all? Because I, I, they were like they took they took engineers of, of a <laughs> of a technical. No, uh... I was just playing piano. No, Joe was into that with his guys. And uh, mm -hmm. in fact, the album was called Joseph Bird and the Field Hippies. Right. <laughs> and that was for me because I was called the Field Hippie. That's great. He named the record for me and his uh, <laughs> dedicated to his brother. But he was. And he actually turned me on to gospel music. He was writing something called the Gospel Brass, which is partially on that record, um, writing gospel, gospel music for brass. And I had never really had that much gospel in my uh, career. And I just loved it. And he taught me, gave me names, people to listen to. And there was a guitarist named Ted Green. And... Um, some very, very famous West Coast guys were on that record. Very famous. I think Tom Scott was on that record. Uh, did you ever uh, audition for um, Janis Joplin? Did you ever meet her? Well, oh, no, no. So we're recording with Joe down there, and we find out where Janis lives. So me and Ben just go to her house. Okay. And there's a, a newspaper guy there for some reason. And she's not there. And I say, hey, my name is Potton. I came here. I want to play with Janice. 
And I mean, that's really what happened. Yeah. And I said, you know, I know Harvey Brooks, who I did know from playing in the village and we had been friends and she thought I was nuts. And this guy actually wrote a very, very article, not very nice to me. Cause you know, who's this nut came up and told her, but I would have been good in that band, but it was a great band. But we, I had no, like no inhibitions about what I was going to do. So I worked with Joe on that album and years later on other uh, projects. And then in 19, so we wound up in 1978, he was working with Ry Cooter hmm. and Ry Cooter had just done an album called jazz and Joe did the arrangements. It was a lot of stuff from the thirties and twenties, Dick Spiederbeck gospel. He had the diamond gospel group singing with them. And he calls me from the coast and he says, uh, oh, Philip, uh, pod, you know, I want you to come and do the tour for this thing. And I, and I said, well, I haven't heard it yet. I said, who played piano on the cuts? And he said, Earl Father Hines. I said, no, thank you. <laughs> I said, I can't play that. He said, no, no. He said, I need a nervous New Yorker. These are all L.A. cats. <laughs> I need a nervous New Yorker. He said, nervous New York Jew, I think, on piano. And... Uh, that is on uh, YouTube. Ry Cooter in Chicago. I'll get the name of the thing. 1978, with a great a great band. Joe Wilder on, on trumpet. George oh, DeVivier. Wow. I'll, uh, I'll link and, to that in the in the show notes. That, that's and, incredible. Uh, and me playing and me learning for the first time that the guys who played stride didn't make it up. I learned that they actually practiced it. Because <laughs> I was playing stride piano stuff in the key of E. Now, right. for a piano player like me, it wasn't so easy. But right. I did. I learned it. And then we played at Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall. Hall. That's the Jewish pronunciation of Hall. <laughs> Hall. Carnegie Hall. And then um, we played in Chicago. It was for a, a TV show. But I'll, I'll have to get the name of it. But what a band. And just great music. Uh, the... I think Harvey Patel played clarinet. Um, these were all the, uh, oh, Phil Bodner. These were the top guys. I mean, I forget so, the, the yeah. xylophonist name. He was fantastic. So let me ask you a question. So just a, just a more a broader question. Throughout this whole time, so, so I'm getting a picture of you as someone who really just, you just were a musical, really musical guy and you you fell fell into all these situations you had a lot of incredible creativity you had you had piano skills and and, and vocal skills and, and and when you say you have no ambition i mean were you making a living did you care about that were you sleeping were you like sleeping on floors like what like what was what was i think until i started playing at jc superstar in 1971 i think the year before that i had made sixteen hundred dollars and the year after that, I made, I don't know, sixteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. And to me, that was like the jackpot. Right. Because <laughs> then I was in a group, by, by 1971, I was playing with Randall's Island, with mm. Elliot Randall, mm -hmm. the great guitarist. So after, yeah. uh, I, had a, I had my own group that Ben put together with me called Napanor, and we had great guys in that group, including Gary King of Blessed Memory, who went on to play with Bob James for 19 years. Uh, Lenny Pogan, I'm a great guitar player, just great guys. And 
we just tried it and it didn't, in the end, it didn't work out. And then Elliot Randall came and one of our drummers, Steve Tindall of Blessed Memory said, told Elliot, Elliot, you got to hear this guy pot. He's crazy. You got to hear him. So he came down and he played with me in my loft, which is right near where I used to live, where I just moved from. And he asked me to join Randall's Island. Wow. Get a deal on Polygon. And of course, in typical fashion, I said, no. <laughs> Why? I think because that's the way I was brought up. So he said, I'll call you back in a few minutes and then you could change your mind. Okay. I said, all right. <laughs> and you know, I just gotten uh, married for the first time. That didn't last long, but, um, I realized I had to make a living and this thing might do it. <clears throat> I don't know how that worked out. So, um, I, I recorded a few numbers on his first, on one album for him. And then we made an album called Rock and Roll City, <clears throat> which, and he was um, managed by a guy named Rick who was working with, uh, who's the guy, who's the guy who produced the Beatles, produced the Bee Gees I, from the Australia. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I've, I've, I'm sure I recognize his name, but it's not on the tip of my tongue. Uh, yeah, he's not so old, I mean, he's a very well known, you know. Yeah. So he was working with them and we went on the road with John Mayo. Wow. As opening to John Mayall. So we toured Europe and the United States was fantastic. John was fantastic. It was Sugar Cane Harris on violin, Harvey Mandel on, on, on guitar, Paul, I forget his name, on drums, and uh, one of the great bass players, Larry Taylor, called The Bear, who played with everybody. He played with Can Heat first and did a lot of stuff with Tom Waits and yeah. You know, we would open for them and we would hang out with them. And that was uh, quite an experience. And this is all by the time I'm 26. So you, you've played with a lot of a lot of uh, Steely Dan uh, session musicians. I mean, Elliot Randall and, and some of the guys. in. yeah, in, Elliot uh, played the, 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 the solo on Real and in the Right, Year. of course. <laughs> and on Asia, he did so many things. Yeah. Elliot and playing with that band was sensational. Alan Herman was the, a drummer and the first Bob Biatz on bass. And then, um, Gary King and, um, I see Paul Fleischer, the incredible horn player who is completely mad, who would play, we played it to Fillmore East and, um, he wore a clear plastic business suit. <laughs> blowing smoke from his tenor. <laughs> this is what was going on. And we all learned to ride unicycles because Paul could ride unicycles. <laughs> so when we got off the road with, when we got off the road with uh, uh, John Mayo, Superstar had just come to town. And Andrew and uh, who, who produced Super Superstar? I can't. It starts with S. Stigwood. Robert Stigwood was mm. was involved. This is all old stuff because my head won't play. So Robert Stigwood and it took brought Andrew uh, to hear us play, and he said, "Fine." So we became the band for Jesus Christ Superstar. Wow! And there I met every great musician you could think of, and I also improved. I had already studied in college. I have a degree in music and composition. I won an award for writing. I wrote a first movement of the Chamber Symphony. And I was thinking of going into classical at one point. Hmm. But I wasn't well-trained as a pianist. Everything I learned was by myself, sort of. 
uh, which amazes me that I could even make a living doing that. It's incredible. I mean, throughout throughout these years, you so basically, was it, it you kind of went from gig to gig, and you just kind of fell into? Did you ever come in times where you were like, I don't know how I'm gonna make it to you know how I'm gonna pay my my bills and, and or just the gigs just kind of came all the time. <laughs> I I I lived at home until I was twenty, and then. You know, and then I went out and you got to remember New York at that time, you could get a group apartment and play $50 a month or something. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. People said you, they liked us because we were crazy. We got invited to things. We, and then um, Ben and I, in the meantime, had written a children's book in the early, late middle 60s called Lewis about a, a little kid with a red beard who walks for president. Hmm. And they sent us all around the country and we were just like freaks, you know, every hotel we went to, we destroyed the place. <laughs> we were on to tell the truth. Uh, we were on all these big shows. Uh, we, we, ben and I just created a, a tremendous amount of stuff at that time. And many years later, we wrote a musical about the Baal Shem Tov, which ran for a little bit. And we're still working on stuff from that. Ben's a wonderful storyteller. And I was doing the music on that. So, um, okay, so that brings us into the early eight. I don't even know where we are, but so yeah, that, that's the thing. Your your story is like is like a is like a, a psychedelic journey. It is. Well, Lewis was like a psychedelic thing. I've lost all sense of time. I, my my head is in like a bunch of different musical genres, and you know, you go from <laughs> from Broadway to to you know Dave Van Ronk to psychedelic synthesizers to you know Otis Spann to you know. It's like, you just, I don't know. I just, along the way, people liked some of the stuff I did. I started, Obviously, clearly, wrote a lot of songs, but I don't think they got good until many years later when I had, when I went through a lot of stuff and my emotions started opening up. And at some point, I started really studying lyrics. When did that? When did that happen? Was that still in the seventies, or that was already later? I think you're getting into the 80s now, but in the 70s, I wrote a song called I Apologize. And Wayne Newton did it, and it hit number 50 on the easy listening chart. And the um, problem was that I think the company got investigated after that, and that was the end of that. But I had written things with people, and I'd been working with Kenny Vance and on a number of projects, uh, movies, and I just had like a few people I worked for, and then I was in the jingle business. The Sesame Street stuff Sesame was... Sesame Street was uh, 1970. Well, ben, Benjamin and I had Lewis book, and we were on Joe Franklin, and we met Meredith Stein, who had the children, first old children's theater. And so she invited us to write a play based on our book, and we did. And we went on to write a bunch of plays for them, and they ran for 10 years straight. Wow. I mean, and they were fairly psychedelic. And the music was never played down to the kids because I learned about kids. They can sing anything if you don't change it on them. Hmm. You could teach a kid, as long as you don't come in the next day and go change this other note. Forget it. Mm -hmm. But they don't, they just will be able to do it. And we had some very sophisticated songs. And we wrote Lewis and Aloysius I Tickle. And Guess Again, which we made into a record. 
When, when you're you're saying we, you're talking about collaborating with Ben Goldstein. Me and Ben Goldstein. So that that's been a long, that's been like a lifelong collaboration, really. It sounds like. The, yeah, we're still we're still working on it. We're very good friends, and uh, we started studying together. When, uh, so if you want to get back into how we got into studying the doo-wop, I had this group. Before I joined at Randall's Island, I had a group called Napano, and we were knocking on doors at 1650. Anybody want to hear our demos? And we knocked on the doors of Jay and the Americans, who had many 16 hit records. Mm. And they said, well, play us some stuff. And we did, and Kenny was there. And he saw that, you know, I had some talent. He said, you want to do some writing and arranging for me? And I started working with Kenny, and uh, we, Kenny produced an album uh, Ralphie Pagan, a really great Latin album. And I, I got to arrange that. And I have brought him a song also from Oscar Brown Jr. called Brother, Where Are You? that he recorded. Um, Ralphie, unfortunately, about 10 years later, was shot in a drug deal. Hmm. But he was the sweetest guy or something like that, just something crazy. He was the sweetest guy. And, and John Fosty was the engineer. And he was, I got to meet all these guys in the Latin field. When were you working with, with Kenny Vance? Um, until now, but uh, started in the 70s. Was that, was that after? Because there's another Steely Dan connection, because uh, Fagan and Becker um, worked with Kenny Vance they, in the early 70s. Yes, before. they were, they were backup bands. <laughs> I don't know if they wanted to. They, the two of them played with the backup bands with Jane Americans for a while, and actually Kenny had their first album of some stuff that no one had heard, but... Did, that was so. That was before you, before your association with him, or right yeah. around. Okay, right about that. And then the year after I played with um, Ry Cooter on the road, um, I got a call to play with um, Roberta Flack. Hmm. So she was doing a tour, and uh, some friends of mine were on the tour. So I don't know. Here I was playing. Oh, it was Eric Mercury got me the job. Eric Mercury, a wonderful talent, great singer. I had met him through Elliot, superstar, and he was on the tour with her. And so I toured with Roberta, and that was great. And then you get to meet all the people who come to see Roberta. So how so how long did you play? I didn't realize. How long did you play? I played with her for about three months. Three months. Wow. Because that's how long the tour was, and we. It was the time when the DC-8s were not usable. So we would play the gig and stay up late and then have to get up at 8 o'clock to catch a plane out because I, the DC-8 you couldn't take. Remember they had that trouble on the planes? and Yeah. So, and this is right before I met my wife in 1979. Well, Rotaflack was huge. I mean, that was must have been a major gig. Oh, I mean, yeah, she, yeah. Killing Me Softly was like, I don't know what year was that, but that was like a huge hit. She had a number of them. Yeah, she's wonderful. So, and she was some heck of a musician. She still is. She's a fantastic piano player and a fantastic musician, and you had to play good. <laughs> you had to play good, and I got to play some piano for her and keyboards, and that was very nice. And uh, Gene Santini was the bass player, and some, I met the background singers were, of course, great. And then if you played at a stadium, the people you'd see Roscoe Lee Brown or somebody coming to say hello, and you know it's a fantasy world. Wow. Um, and then, so I've been working with Kenny, and then all, we worked on tons of projects together. One day he says, um, "I know him since uh, a long time," 
he started changing a little bit in his uh, conversational tone, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I say, uh, what's going on with you? You seem to be reading books or something. He said, no, I'm going to see a rabbi. You what? Huh. He was the last person I thought was going to, you know, Kenny Vance? rock and roll person. Yeah. He said, you're going to see a rabbi? I said, yeah, you want to come with me? And by the time we were kind of getting into things, and I said, why are you going to see a rabbi? And he said to me the best answer I ever got. I still think it's the most poignant. Uh-huh. He said, because I don't want to be like an uncle who does card tricks for my children. I didn't even know Kenny Vance was Jewish. <laughs> Rosenberg. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's very Jewish. And, uh, during the years that we were together, he would call me up and say, I'm doing a movie down here. Send me some books for Goldie Horn or something. Hmm. Or I saw Richard Dreyfuss and we do, I want to send him this, get, pick it up for me or whatever. He gave me my first set of fill after 1981, 1986. I had my first heart attack. So... It was a year after I started seeing, I, so I went, I said to my wife, I said, uh, you know, I never kind of made peace with my Judaism. I kind of feel funny because I know I was in therapy for many years and it, which showed me that things that happened when I was younger had some impact. I said, spiritually, it could very well be the same thing. Why should I live my life about what happened to me in Hebrew school when I was 10 years old? Hmm. But, you know, I'll go, and this was all not for any spiritual reason. It was for my intellectual integrity. Mm. said, I want to be able to say, I spoke to someone as an adult, and yeah, maybe I'll light a candle or something, but I didn't just live my life based on what happened to me as a child. It just didn't seem right, intellectually. So I go to, uh, in Kenny's, uh, what did he have here, a BMW, and we'd met him after his acting class down in the village and a bunch of artists, including myself, we went out to see Simmons and he was a sweet young guy with a beard and very welcoming and you know, like that. And I get, remember I had studied pretty heavy mysticism and uh, yoga and this and that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'd really studied the deep stuff and he starts talking and it's like, I slammed my hand on his table and said, what are you talking about? He said, this is Yiddishkeit. I said, I never heard this before in my life. He said, that's the shame. Hmm. And that was it. I think if my wife would have known what was going to happen to me after that, she would have said, don't go. (laughs) (laughs) Because it got very rough for her later. Because she married one guy, all of a sudden needs new plates and is not going to the movies Friday night. You know, it was, I'm very lucky my wife's so holy. Well, so this is, this is, you know, a, a major question for you. Cause it's something that, that I admire about you a lot, which I think is something very unique. Um, for, for one, one of the themes of this podcast is how one of the things that I explore in my own life is how as a, a musician, as a creative person to put, a family first to put a marriage first. It's it, there's often conflicts that 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 can arise. It's not just even um, the commitment to 
let's say gigs or, or other career aspects, but even just, for example, um, you know, how, how any, any artist, particularly a musician, is, is particularly a songwriter or composer, has music on their brain a lot, you know, which is not always the most uh, yeah. pleasant yeah, thing yeah. For, for a partner who, who wants you to be present with them. Um, and, but then, but so that's, an, that's a challenge in itself, to be, um, to be a creative person and have a successful marriage. But then to add to that, to be, uh, you know, to have a religious observance and a passion for that practice, which is, is itself a consuming, you know, t is very demanding uh, observance. And then to have, have a wife who, who um, not necessarily is on the exact same path, but nevertheless to have uh, a marriage that's lasted so long and has been so fruitful, uh, that to me is an in incredible thing. And, I, and I'd love for could you never to... Have, would ne could never have happened without the Torah. Could never have happened. Without Torah, you don't, you don't stand a chance. Without having good advisors, says in the Mishnah, you know, like you and me, if I've got a problem, I might call you, you call me, right? We call people we trust and we discuss it. Mm. So we have rabbis we trust and stuff. We don't just jump ahead because of our emotions. Right. That's only learned from the Torah. You know, say the Torah and Kanil I think I was lucky yeah. that when I met my, when I met my wife, I was sort of off the road for a long time. Mm. I was in town doing jingles and stuff. And so that was, it was good. I wasn't out all the time. And she might've got used to that. But like when I did Superstar, I was on the road a couple of years, I think, you know? That was during your, fir your first marriage. Yeah, it didn't last long. But right. then again, I was, I was playing at the show. And, and yet, but I think when those things can work, when, you know, if you know what the things are about and what the commitments are and what the, what the agreements are, of course, we're just, most people don't get any training. They should make it a high school. They should start talking about what it means to be in a marriage. Right. They should, you know, people don't know what a relationship is. You know, you have to learn to talk to people. You have to learn. And it's not just what comes first, because, you know, if your family's behind you and you got something important, they'll say, go, we'll do okay. You know, they'll right. say, go do the gig. It's important. It's okay. They're not going to be on you. But if it's, you know, you can use it for your own selfishness and say, I've got music on my mind all the time, but it doesn't have to be music. It could just be more of your own ego. Right. You have to be able to separate out. If it's really the music and you're in something, people will understand. And then you take a break. And if you have some trust that the Abish, the, the God is helping you with that, he's not going to let you do something that's going to hurt you. Right. So it says, you know, on Rosh Hashanah, God tells you how much you're going to make. So you don't have to connive. You have to go look for work. You definitely have to go look for work. But, you know, can't connive. And a marriage is a very important thing, you know. You know, I just had a thought. I'd never thought about this before. Do you think on Rosh Hashanah we're also determined how, how many songs you're going to write? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's for Eskogabi. That's for the Shoal and the Rav. <laughs> I don't know, you know, if you write one good one, you're lucky, or maybe they're all one song and parts of one. Right, if you right. think of your life as a song, if you think that the Torah is a song, write this song, it says, write this song, he writes the Torah. The, the, the songs are all part of that. I'll tell you one interesting thing that did happen when I uh, met Simon Jacobson in 1985, and Kenny took me, and I wow. knew him from Dua. So if I hadn't sung Dua at 14, I might never have gotten there. Wow. 
Well, I don't know <laughs> how I would have gotten the ABC would have brought me somewhere, but you know, it's all now it comes you know, full it's like circle. Purim. Yeah. <laughs> it's Purim, you have to connect the dots, constantly connect the dots because Purim is nine years long, right? Yeah, the, the book of Esther is not you have to connect the dots. How did they know one thing from the other? So he brought me there, and then you know, you see what. You, you know, I would have I would have Rabbi Jacobson to talk to or other people and get some advice and say what, you know, uh, go to therapy. You know, I, I was in therapy for quite a bit. I think I ended that in 91. But because I had a fairly dysfunctional childhood altogether. But I always think I had the feeling that I wanted to know why things happened to me. Hmm. And it bugged me for uh, years. I'd always have girlfriends and I would break up and this and that. It was the worst, not that just that they broke up, but I never understood anything. Mm. So I got into, and after my first marriage broke up, I got into therapy and that, all different kinds. And and over years and years, I chipped away and chipped away and found stuff. And I, it opened up spaces inside me where I could reach for deeper lyrics and for meaning. And But I didn't have the courage to do them I, just here and there because I was still trying to write for other people. It was only when I met Rabbi Jacobson and his constantly saying, everybody has a mission, you have to do your mission. But I said, to heck with it, I'm just writing what I want. That's what happened there. And I wrote, I wrote a lot of stuff. It, it's, it strikes me as one where you're talking about having you know, faith that, that God is going to take care of you. One, one of the first things that comes to mind with that in this particular conversation, I mean, there's one in terms of obviously the, the help that we need and in terms of having a, a keeping a successful relationship going and, and having that kind of harmony and stability. And I, I was thinking about it in terms of even just in the musical realm itself, for, that I used to believe, I used to, or used to have this strong sense that you have a flash of inspiration and you have to pursue it. And, it's, and if, if you don't, it's, it's gone. You know, there's, this idea might be gone. And I almost found it as a matter of faith that I can let go of the idea focus on the people around me for a minute. And, and I can trust that if it's the right idea, <laughs> it's going to come back. I don't have to, to be, yeah, I, you know. I I, so. You can have 40 yeah. ideas a minute. Where you, yeah. You'll be crazy. I have a friend who can't cut off. He can't turn off the faucet. For right. every idea he has, he has 10 more in the next 10 minutes. Yeah. You, what you do is you make a note and you drop it. So I always carry, my friend Paul always used to have a little book called His Brains and he carried with him. <laughs> I always carry my brains. If I have a no, something that's important, I jot down the thing and put it away. Right. Later, you know, I just recently on my new album, I have a song that uh, it's called, uh, This Is My Theory of Everything. And it was from find, looking through my lyrics from 10 years ago, I found the first paragraph. I said, you know what? That's now I'm ready to write that. Hmm. But you didn't spend 10 years thinking about it. Everybody, is, I have to respect everybody's uh, process. But, you know, I mean, then you come up with the situation of what is a relationship anyway. I mean, that's a whole other question. And, and most of us, if you're lucky, you find a, a wife and a partner who's just, uh, you know, the women are holier than we are. That's all I can say. <laughs> Modern and holier. I always, like I say, when I, my class, my, I've been giving a class now for 30, it's my 33rd year. I'm operating out of Riverdale now. And I say, 
everything you hear tonight and everything you get, you owe to my wife. <laughs> well, I, I owe you, I, listen, my, my th um, thank God my marriage and, and this, the, um, it's, you know, success. I mean, there's a lot I owe to, to you and your, um, your influence and, and your, um, Hashbah, your, your um, direction, especially our long-standing learning together, specifically about the topic of marital harmony, is something that has really stayed with me. Um, and your, your enthusiasm for that topic and, and that, that idea that it's, it doesn't, it has to be learned. And, it, and it, it's, it's not some, you know, it's something from someone like myself, as, as, as you shared, have shared that for yourself as well, doesn't necessarily come naturally. It needs. I mean, that's an amazing thing about your story. Is is and, and how I uh, relate to you in a certain way. That going from a place of of real creative chaos to a place where you can really um, superimpose and some direction through a little bit uh, some wisdom, some applying some wisdom to an otherwise very maybe very creatively rich and fruitful but chaotic <laughs> existence, you know? Um, that's, that, yeah, that's the world of Tohu. You need to have it in your music, if you know what I mean. I mean, yeah, thank you for saying that, and I got as much out of it as you did, and I found something that worked, and uh, that book that we studied was given to me by Avi Piamenta, just out of the blue one day. Wow. Philip, you got to see this book, and I, I've been through it 12 times at least with different people. Yeah. With pretty much good results and also reminds myself. But um, in the 80s, if we're up to that, um, I started playing in cabaret. I, I met Rabbi Jacobson in 85, and then I started playing in cabarets. I had actually started a group of guys, and it was just like, I don't know, schlepping around with a bunch of guys and carrying equipment. I don't know. So I was, here's an interesting story. I was um I had a friend named Judith Halevi, and she was friends with um, Hirschfeld's daughter, Nina, mm. the, the artist. She said, Philip, come over and play for us. Hirschfeld's here. So I went over, and they were having dessert. And I'm playing these songs by myself for the first time. And uh, I'm thinking, well, this is much easier. <laughs> <laughs> I take the piano, I go, yeah, that's it. And uh, I said goodnight to him and everything, and he had left me a drawing of me. Oh, wow. And I've been using it for years. It's, on, it's a black and white drawing that he left me on the back of one of his doctor's appointment things. And the kick of it is I can't find the original, but I have it. You have a copy. Oh, I got a million copies, but... So, so, the, so the, you're saying that the, the thing about the cabaret, I'm trying just to appreciate what that was, because you didn't have to schlep equipment, what is that exactly? I'm picturing Joel Grey, makeup, you know. They have these clubs. Right. You can play what you want, but it's mostly show tunes. But I was writing tunes, so you go and audition, they give you a spot. Basically, it's about can you bring people in. Okay. You can bring people in, they'll hire you. So I auditioned for a couple of days because I saw her do it. And I said, oh, this is a nice room and I like the atmosphere. And if you play at eight o'clock, you could be home by 930 eating ice cream in front of the television. <laughs> that I liked. <laughs> that I liked a lot. 
So I started playing cabaret, but also in studying all the great lyricists and writing. And I was invited. Uh, people started doing my funny songs, which I'll be putting out soon in a, an album called 50 Chairs in My Living Room and Other Neurotic Hits. <laughs> and uh, these... And then I got to play at Town Hall and I met Andrea Marcovici and she wanted to record my songs. So I, you, you get into a place where people really care about songs and they listen. And you have to really, every word counts when you're playing and singing. Hmm. So it was a very good experience. I did it for about nine years and I wrote a huge body of work, a lot of them fairly neurotic. But I, I worked on my really polishing, it's like woodshedding. Hmm. Internal rhymes, external rhymes. What if we cut the word in here? What if you change the thing there? What if music stops? Whatever, you know, without anybody telling me what to do. And they made a cabaret uh, CD called Live from Different Places. And about a year after I started playing in cabaret, which coincided pretty much with Simmons, I had a heart attack. Hmm. And talk about Hashkacha Pratis, where God takes you. It must have been meant to be because I was having really bad pains in my chest. And then one night it was really bad. And um, I called my doctor. He said, go to the emergency room. So we go to the emergency room. And as I'm, they think I've got indigestion. And as I'm lying on the gurney there, I pass out and had a heart attack right on the gurney in wow. the hospital. And my wife at the time was six months pregnant. Wow. I mean, you're so young. I mean, that that was I, that couldn't have been at all. Yeah, forty. I was forty-one. It was it's hereditary? Everybody in my family has had some event. Wow. But my father died of it at the age of forty-three, and I lost two brothers, and my other brother had a triple bypass, and a year and a half after that, I had a quadruple bypass, and it was exactly that time that I started really writing my absurd, funny songs. It's so weird. Hmm. And uh, that's why it's, it's, you know, it's like, uh, first I would write them totally with all the, the pain and pathos, and then I would go clean them up, and people started laughing. I worry about tomorrow. I worry about today. I worry that you'll leave me. Then I worry that you'll stay. I can't make up my mind because I know that either way, all I'm going to do is worry. You know, <laughs> but people were enjoying them. And now I'm going to probably go out and play them again soon with a, like a jazz trio or quartet. Wow. That style. But it was one thing led to another. And thank God that I had been, people used to say to me, oh, you had a heart attack, so you got into religion. No, no, no. I was into, I was into studying for about a year and a little more than a year before. Hmm. And it was after that, when I had that first heart attack, that I couldn't go to see Robert Jacobson. He suggested that I started Kavrusa. Hmm. I said, sure, what's that? He said, you study with someone. I said, okay, he said, you just get a Kumish. I said, sure, what's that? Hmm. That's where I was. Hmm. And I started studying with a guy named Josh Aronson, who was an Academy Award nominee for Sound and Fury, a documentary he made. And all the people who were going to Simmons said, I hear you're studying, can I come? I said, I'm studying because I can't get, I'm, I can't get around so well. <laughs> so we don't care. You're in, you're in Manhattan, right? I said, yeah, I had one book. And before I knew it, I had 15 people at my house every week. 
And all I knew is we, re- we would read the Parsha as it's written and argue. I had people who were orthodox. I had people who were reformed. I had people who didn't care. But we were all there together. And, that le- and that's how the class got started. Wow, that, I didn't realize it was 30, that long that long standing. 33 years now. I'm wow. in my 33rd year. Just started up here in Riverdale. And uh, I don't know. And just kept it because, because a lot of the time I was sick a year and a half after that, I had a quadruple bypass, 88. A couple of years later, I had a second small heart attack. You know, with all the events in between and tests and hmm. wondering if I'm going to live or die. And then the arrhythmias and the, I don't want to put you through it, but uh, many, many funky years where I didn't know uh, how I was going to survive. And in 2002, I had my third heart attack. I haven't had anything since it, Baruch Hashem. Wow. And um, you're a walking miracle. Yeah. Yeah. And to do any, you know, I would, I would get myself together. No one would know. I'd go, I'd show up at the gig and play the two hour set, but I'd be tired after, you know, for singing, you know, people didn't get it that what it took to get me out of the house, but I feel pretty good. Thank God. And right now I think I'm, I'm working on some jazz tunes that I started in the sixties that I never really got to record because I think when you start out, you take some chances that you might lose later on when the commercial mm. bit comes in. Mm. I found some stuff that didn't do that, and I'm finishing those up to put out a jazz album. And I've got some really uh, great players, Lou Solov, Bob Crenshaw, Warren Oates, Chris Parker, you know, uh, yeah. Roger Rosenberg. All, the, all these fantastic. Roger Rosenberg, who's a good friend of mine, he plays with Steely Dan regularly, and he's just a magnificent uh, jazz player. And it's almost almost like you you know you as you you just it's, it seems like you're just he, you're just heating up you know <laughs> I mean after all these years all this music and you've done all these things oh. and it's almost like I get the sense which you're in a place where you're kind of you're revisiting earlier tunes you're you're re um you're almost you're you're looking into you know doing with the old comedy tunes and the older jazz tunes and almost like you're you're just starting a, a brand. A brand new stage it sounds like to me um a new a new uh... i i i hope i have a studio set up i mean i also you know in 1991 i wrote a show called finkel's follies which starred five-ish finkel and it ran for six months off broadway elliot finkel was the composer and we played in california and here and one of my exciting moments was backstage when we did that in at the westwood westwood playhouse and Bancroft came and gave me a hug. Uh, Red Buttons was there, and Jan Murray was there, and this one was there because they all knew Fibish. And it was a really, it was a nice show. Theodore Beckel was there, of course. It was just I had an opportunity because um, David Brenner was a friend of mine years ago, and he said you have to go see Sid Caesar at the Village Gate. You have to see him. So I went, and Elliot Finkel was playing there piano and his brother was fantastic. He's a fantastic pianist and his brother's a xylophonist. It's magnificent. And Marilyn Sokol was in the cast and I'd known her from other things I'd written for her. And so I gave Elliot my uh, cabaret CD at the time. And after that, he gave me a call and said, would you like to write some lyrics for a show? So that's how that happened. Hmm. And I wrote for him for 20 years as father. I wrote things for reviews for him and some really good stuff. 
I took a course in uh, Yiddish. Never learned to speak it, but I got to rhyme some Yiddish words and uh, English words. That was good work. Philip, you've done, I mean, you've done so much. I mean, it's, my head is spinning with, with the amount of things that you've done. Yeah, and, it's and... my fault. I can't, I can't even put my own list. Sometimes my classes are like that. People come out there and spin. And then I, then I get focused. Have you, have you thought about writing a book with, with going, th- you know, of started, experiences? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I started writing, a, I, I started looking, I have a library that I've been collecting for years about my Jewish books. Because mm-hmm. I like, whenever I hear something, I like to be able to look it up. Now, I don't read the Rashi prints or anything, but I can read enough Hebrew and uh, mostly in English. So I have a nice library. And uh, where, why did I state that? I don't forgot. Now I forgot why I said that. Anyway. Oh, that's what I say. When I was right in the 80s, I was writing this cabaret stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had stopped playing rock and roll. When I started writing. Jew, stuff with Jewish content, I went right back to my roots and rock and roll. Hmm. It all came back at the very same time. And that was just an amazing gift. Hmm. So you never know, there's stuff waiting for you. So, I, I really, again, I really appreciate your time and I'm in respect of your time and also just a little bit more. Um, I, I wanted to just ask you one kind of final question maybe it's a little bit of a of a broader t- topic but um connected with everything that we're talking about in terms of your story in terms of your your spiritual path um music and relationships and everything i one of the topics that came up we just um released an interview with uh with yitzhak Biton, um and he was talking about his experiences uh, his interactions with the lubavitcher rebbe and the guidance that he got from mm. the rebbe regarding his music and he was also speaking about um, his perspective on how his music connects with um, with Geula, with with redemption, personal redemption, global redemption. I, I was, and I wanted to um, ask you, but I guess those are two parts. One is is in terms of your interaction. If you had had any um, guidance or correspondence with the Lubavitcher Rebbe regarding um, your music, and number two, how do you how you see um, your music connecting to redemption, personal and, and global. Well, it's broad, nice. Um, I didn't have personal contact with the Rebbe. I caught dollars from him. I, his office once called me and told me to change my businesses. Hmm. Um, I have a copy of a note that he gave to Sim and Jacobson, the Jacobson, that he'll pray for me at his grave. But most of what I got was through Simon. Mm-hmm. But he, Simon was very close. It was the chosen for the Rebbe for 14 years. So I got a lot of real stuff. And if it weren't for the Rebbe, I would not be alive. That's all I can tell you. Without Hasidus, uh, with just being a basic neurotic Jew that I am, there's no way I would have made it through the relationship. No way I would have had uh, a huge, uh, wonderful child and to be a teacher for all these years. There's no way, uh, you know, Rabbi Jacobson asked me to, you know, people know him in the community. I've taught his class. He elevated me. He trusted me. He gave me responsibility. He um, he was my mentor, and he uh, still is, and uh, along with some other people. Without the connection, I don't know. I'm, I wouldn't have created the music, and I think the music speaks for itself. And if I can write a song like uh, "Every Soul Is a Candle," of, you know, and also you can't don't be tricked into thinking that 
if you add something uh, spiritual in it, it's just all of a sudden becomes like a spiritual song. It's not that. What spirituality helps you grab all the layers along the way. And one of my disappointments in a lot of Jewish music personally is that people don't go deep enough. Mm. If you want to set the Psalms, that's fine. But let me hear something about your personal struggle. Let me hear something about something real in your life because it's real. And I think um, I have a song called Water from a Rock, which is on SoundCloud, which is a really good one. It talks about the struggles and what we want because we're always, you know, Tzadik Ein Lomanucha, where you don't stand still. You have to keep moving. You have to, there's just so much in it. And the, uh, the, what it's given to me as a teacher or, or whatever, uh, to meet so many incredible people along the way and to see their eyes open, not because of what I say. Sometimes someone will say in my class, yeah, but that's your opinion. I say, no, 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 don't get me wrong. It's not my opinion. Hmm. This is what I learned from my teachers, and I can show you sources from it. I may state it in my way. If you don't like it, it's okay, but please don't think it's me sitting here giving my opinion because I'm just basically an erotic Jew from the Bronx, and you don't really want to hear what I got to say. <laughs> so, so in terms of whether it's your opinion or from the sources, what, what is your, um, your, feel, your sense of, of how music connects to, to redemption? You know, this free will. Um, as you know, the Sanigun has no words because it's going deeper and deeper. The, the, it's not a big enough vessel for words. It's too big of it's too big a light for a vessel of words. Unfortunately, you see people use use the, the music for negativity and put out negative ideas. Music is a vessel, mm. but those things will not last. They will not last. They may last in the in the commercial sense, and people make, uh, but they're not bringing the giula. The gil is every day is every day the kindness you do for someone else. The one thing that's hard for you to do is just say, today I'm going to do it. And when you wake up in the morning, you say, I'd just like to do something nice for someone. Because I'll tell you, um, for many years, and I still try to do it, no matter what I can do for myself, because some days just don't work out for me. I have to admit it. Hmm. I can't get anything done anywhere. I mean, it's press. Something happens, Okay. Mm-hmm. I know that I can always do something for someone else and I will call someone who needs a phone call or give Sadaka to someone who needs it because there's something you can do every day and you must do something every day. It says Abraham Zakain Baba Yomim. Abraham was old. He came into his days. He used every minute just because the minute doesn't feel the way you want to just because the minute feels like you're ready to slit your wrist doesn't mean you can't do something good. It's just feelings. So, so this is the thing. So when the examples you gave in terms of, of, of in terms of doing good, good the, the, in terms of doing good things and, and spreading kindness are examples that, um, you know, are, are obviously, um, whether you're calling someone who needs help or you're, you're doing, giving some tzedakah. So those things are, let's say, more well established that these are when someone does acts of kindness. So what I'm kind of interested in, in hearing from you, what your sense of, let's say someone in terms of music, how do you see music in, in that context? Do you see music as that kind of con- kindness? Because obviously music can have a negative element, it can have a selfish element. But how, how is music used in a way where, where it's, it's connecting to that, 
um, that giving that doing beyond oneself. Well, I think you could probably answer that. When you meet some, when you meet someone who wants to do it, you have to encourage them. Mm. Don't don't say, "Well, I can, I won't." You have to help them, mm-hmm. especially if you know if it's good. You know, but the way people use things, you could look. The world is is a lot of issues. You know, you, I'm going to sanctify myself and things that are permissible. Most of us use things that are permissible to go off the, you know, go off to get out and go into outer space and eat kosher <laughs> food. But if you eat tons of it, you're going to get big. Right. I think with music, you know, people should could listen to it. But if they want to make it, always make sure that you include them in your music and your song, which is the song of your life. Hmm. If someone feels that they're included in the song of your life, they'll want to make their own music. Hmm. Philip Namenworth, thank you so much for... My good friend, thank you so much. I'm very honored to speak to you. I love you a lot. Love you too, brother. I love so much from you. You're my my friend and um, my teacher, and and I uh, look forward to... You should be blessed with with great health, a lot of uh, nachas from from your... your, your grand, your your ch- uh, ch- you know, daughter and 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 grandchild, and uh, you should have a lot of um, success, creative success and financial success, and um, we should together experience Thank the, you. Uh, you know, the true redemption. Amen. And he who blessed is blessed. And thank you very much, you and your holy family. And uh, listen, we're all united here. It's only one people. Only it's one people. What the MS is at the lessons of at the at the level of Atzmuso, God's essence is all one, and we just have to stay united, and we'll we'll be there. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Hope you all enjoyed the conversation with Philip Namenworth. He's he's a real character, a lot of fun to talk to. I learned a lot, not just from talking to him, but actually going back and editing the podcast upon reflection. There was a lot of lessons to pull out from there, uh, as usually these podcast episodes do for me. I hope they're doing it for other people. On that note, I'd love to hear feedback from you all any reactions, any thoughts, anything that really resonated or something you disagree with, please contact me at soundheightsrecords at gmail.com. Of course, you can sign up for our mailing list at soundheightsrecords.com. And uh, our Patreon is patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords. It's been a real pleasure. And remember, with abundant singing and playing of music, bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time.